Well, good morning to all of you. Uh, it is a privilege to be with you this morning. Hey, before I jump in, I was reminded this morning that a year ago this Sunday, um, a number of you uh, joined arms with us at Genesis Church. Uh, our friends across the way at the shelter uh, closed their doors and came. Well, many of you came over here. It's been one year. Can you believe that? That's exciting. Yeah. And um, for those of you who've stuck with us, man, we are so glad that you're continuing to be a part of this this church family. It really is uh, a cool thing. Uh, I, I'll, I'll guarantee you this this morning. Um, if the rocks were thinking of crying out this morning, I don't think it's going to happen because y'all were loud in your singing, and that is amazing. I wasn't even sure if I was going to be able to preach, but I'm going to get through it. I promise. I promise. Well, believe it or not, about a month and a half ago, we celebrated Christmas. Y'all have forgotten all about it, haven't you? You're like, December 26th, you're like, Christmas is over. Time for Valentine's Day or whatever. I don't know. But we did. We celebrated Christmas, and at that time, we remembered uh, the story of a young virgin woman, Mary, giving birth to a baby who was called Emmanuel, God with us. And while the birth of Jesus has so many implications for our faith, one of the most meaningful is that when God looked down on us in our brokenness and our sin, he didn't turn his back. Instead, he came to us. He sent his one and only son to come and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came to live the perfect life, die the death that we deserved, raise again three days later to guarantee us salvation both now and forever and ever and ever. Now, theologians refer to this moment in history as the incarnation, not the flower, okay? Not the carnation, the incarnation. And it's a word that simply means in flesh. Applied to the story of Christmas, this incarnation refers to God coming to earth in the flesh, But the incarnation of Jesus is more than just about him coming as a baby in the flesh. The incarnation of Jesus points to God's method for reaching people with the good news. It started with Jesus, right? I suppose God could have chosen to do nothing, and he would have just stood by and hoped that all of us would have gotten our act together sometime and somehow made our way back to him, even though that would have been impossible to begin with. Or maybe he could have come in some sort of spectacle, right? Just come out, thousands, millions of angels with them riding on a horse, I don't know. Giant Jesus, (laughs) I have no idea. But instead, the incarnation of Jesus Christ shows us God's intention was to be with us right where we are. The incarnation shows us that God's method for spreading the good news of Jesus was to meet all people right where they are. The incarnation reveals that God never demands us to come to him, but he instead decides to come to us. Now, eventually, the church would adopt this same method. The church would become the place through which people would be met right where they are, where people would be met in their sin and in their brokenness, in their pain, in their stress. It would be the one place 
where a person would not be judged for what they had done in the past, but instead would be met with the love of Jesus to see what he wants to do in their future. The incarnation of Jesus soon became the incarnation of the church. Jesus' final words to his disciples were, it's your turn. I'm paraphrasing. It's your turn. I came to be with you, to meet you right where you are, and now I'm calling you, church, followers of me, to do the same. To be the incarnation in the world. To bring the good news to people wherever they may be. It became the mission of the church to seek ways to meet people where they are with the good news of Jesus. And nobody, nobody displayed this better than the Apostle Paul. Having come from this elitist group of Jews, the Pharisees, Paul quickly learned that to be like Jesus is to live out the incarnation in everyday life. It became his mission to be an incarnate piece of what it means to spread the good news in the world, to meet people where they are, and to love them regardless of their situation in life. But as you can imagine, this sort of intentional incarnate lifestyle doesn't go unnoticed, especially to those who instead would rather draw lines in the sand and instead of meeting people where they are, demand they meet them on the other side, which is exactly what we're going to see happen in our passage today. So if you haven't done so yet, grab your phone and open up the YouVersion Bible app, or if you're in your Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 21. Well, Chris had mentioned we've been in this series for a couple years now. Uh, we are heading towards the end, um, but just a recap from last week of where Paul has been specifically, because the last half or so of the entire book of Acts really focuses in and around the person of Paul, the Apostle Paul, one of the great leaders of the early church, and his travels throughout the Roman Empire at the time. And he's been traveling now for months, years, throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, modern-day Greece, Macedonia, all throughout the Mediterranean Sea. And now he has this intention to get back to the church in Jerusalem. He's been going from city to city, church to church, and he's been gathering funds, he's been teaching, he's gathering these funds because the church in Jerusalem is really suffering. They're extremely poor, they're facing a ton of persecution, and so he's gathering these funds to bring back to the church in Jerusalem. What's interesting is that he's actually raising all of these funds from Gentile, non-Jewish churches. And then he's taking those funds and he's bringing it back to the Jewish, primarily Jewish church in Jerusalem. And so he's been making his way down. Last week we saw he made his way to the port city of Tyre, which is just north of Jerusalem. And then he makes his way down to Ptolemais and then Caesarea. And today we will see he actually makes his way to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember along the way, especially from Tyre to Caesarea, there are people that are telling him, Paul, you do not want to go to Jerusalem. It is going to be bad news for you there. The Holy Spirit is actually prompting them to tell him this news. Now, what they don't realize is the Spirit is actually just preparing Paul for what's to come, but they instead want to prevent him from going. Paul, stay with us. You can continue to do your ministry right here. If you go to Jerusalem, who knows what may come of you? But Paul is determined. 
And he knows what the right thing is for him to do, come what may. And so we'll see what happens as he walks into the streets of Jerusalem for the first time in many years. We'll pick up the story in Acts 21, starting in verse 15. It says, After this, we packed our things and left for Jerusalem. Some believers from Caesarea accompanied us, and they took us to the home of Nason, a man originally from Cyprus and one of the early believers. When we arrived, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem welcomed us warmly. Great start. All right. The next day, Paul went with us to meet with James, and all the elders of the Jerusalem church were present. James, if you might remember, was the brother of Jesus, who is now the primary leader, the lead pastor, if you will, of the church in Jerusalem. Verse 19, after greeting them, Paul gave a detailed account of the things God had accomplished among Gentiles through his ministry. If you're not familiar with that word, Gentile just means non-Jewish. Most of us in this room would be considered Gentiles. Verse 20, after hearing this, they praised God. So Paul finally makes it to Jerusalem, and his arrival seems to indicate some good news, right? All these warnings that he's had along the way, Maybe he's starting to think, well, maybe those were, you know, a little bit misguided. It seems like everybody's happy to see me. They welcome me. You know, I told them all this information about what God has been doing in the world. Everybody praised God. Everybody's excited about what God is doing throughout the Roman Empire in Jewish and non-Jewish churches alike. And I'm sure Paul is wondering, maybe my time here won't be so bad after all, right? Maybe God has you know, along the way, change the hearts of everyone in Jerusalem, and I'm going to have a great time. This would not be the case. Verse 20, it turns quickly on him. I'm going to read the first part of verse 20 again, and I want you to see what happens. It says, after hearing this, his detailed account of all that God's been doing, they praised God. And then they said, you know, dear brother, you never... You, it, Anytime a statement starts that way, you know it's going to be bad, right? You know, dear brother, how many thousands of Jews have also believed, and they all follow the law of Moses very seriously. But the Jewish believers here in Jerusalem have been told that you're teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn their backs on the law of Moses. They've heard that you teach them not to circumcise their children or follow other Jewish customs. What should we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, which is another way of saying, you're in trouble, dude. We need some answers. Now, can you imagine this scene? You know, Paul is thinking, this is amazing. You know, these people are welcoming him warmly. And, and the people that are listening to him, they're saying, Paul, this is amazing news. Look at all that God has done. But by the way, and here we go, Paul must be thinking. The leaders of the church in Jerusalem bring up one of the major debates of the church in the first century. And the debate was, do non-Jewish believers need to follow the Jewish customs once they become Christians? And also, do Jewish believers have to continue to follow those customs after they become Christians? Now, for most of those in Jerusalem, the answer to those questions is a resounding yes, right? If you were a Jewish believer in Jerusalem in the first century, you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and you are following him and listening to his teachings, but you haven't abandoned everything that came before that. 
You haven't abandoned the customs that come with your Jewish heritage. You still celebrate many of the festivals. You still go to temple, right? You still make your sacrifice. Like there's, there's things that you're still doing. You still give. You're still doing these things. It's still part of who you are. And so there's this debate. If you become a Christian, do you need to keep doing those things? And for most Jewish believers, especially in Jerusalem, the answer is absolutely you do. However, early on in his ministry, Paul realizes this isn't an issue anymore. Now, you got to understand who Paul is. Paul is, he calls himself a Hebrew among Hebrews. He, he, he knew it all. He did it all. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He followed the law to the T. If anybody was going to pressure people to follow the Jewish customs, it would be Paul. And yet Paul has realized that because of Jesus, he is ultimately the fulfillment of all the Old Testament law. And while it might be nice for you to follow some of those things, it certainly is not necessary. And your salvation does not depend upon it. It's only faith in Jesus, Paul will say. He is the fulfillment of the law. Anything added upon that, well, that's blasphemy. So for the thousands of Gentile believers and many Jewish believers who have now decided, you know what, I don't have to do all this Old Testament stuff the way that I've always done it. I just want to follow Jesus. Paul never instructs them, you have to follow these Jewish customs. And for the thousands of Jewish believers, Paul never instructs them to give up their Jewish customs. It's for him and for the New Testament scriptures, it's a, a point of conscience for a person, right? The Holy Spirit's leading. If this is something that you feel like God is leading you to do, great. But as soon as you start forcing that upon other people, well, now you've crossed a line. And so the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, they've drawn a line in the sand. Either the Gentile believers and those who are Jewish who have stopped following the law, either they fall in line with Jewish customs or they will not be considered part of the church any longer. This is a real problem. And the church leaders in Jerusalem, they want to make sure that they maintain peace and that there's clarity around this issue. Actually, the main priority of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem is that they appease those Jewish believers that are there to make sure that they know Paul is not against the Old Testament law, it's okay, blah, 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 blah. That's what they really, really want. And so in an attempt to satisfy the Jewish believers that Paul is not against the Jewish laws and customs, which he's not, he just is saying, I don't think it's what God wants for us to force this upon people. The leaders of the church in Jerusalem, they've devised a plan. And I imagine they're like in the war room, you know, before Paul comes and they're coming up with all these options. And then somebody has, I got this brilliant idea. And this is what they come up with. Verse 23. Here's what we want you to do. We have four men here who have completed their vow, which was a Jewish custom, by the way. Go with them to the temple and join them in the purification ceremony, paying for them to have their heads ritually shaved, which was a, Jew, a Jewish custom. Then everyone will know that the rumors are false, that you yourself observe the Jewish laws. 
As for the Gentile believers, they should do what we already told them in a letter. They should abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. This was a letter that was written chapters prior, we covered this, where the church universally agreed, yes, you don't have to follow all these Jewish customs, but there are some things, Gentile believers, that we think you need to abstain from so that you remain pure before God in Jesus Christ. So Paul went to the temple the next day with the other men. They had already started the purification ritual, so he publicly announced the date when their vows would end and sacrifices would be offered for each of them. The leaders of the church in Jerusalem strongly believe that if Paul participates in this purification ceremony with these four other believers, which was a Jewish custom, that the masses will be satisfied and all of the rumors about what Paul about Paul will be put to bed. It'll end the discussion. Paul's not against the Jewish law. He actually continues to practice many of these customs all as well, you know, in the church. And so they also reinforced this idea of the Gentile believers following some of these things that they called to abstain, and this, they believe, will be the end of this huge debate that's existed in the church for far too long. What's amazing about this whole scenario, to me, is that Paul actually goes along with it. Paul is a man of, yeah, by the way, <laughs> did you hear me read the story? I, I just read it. <laughs> Sorry, Dara, I think I was there. <laughs> but, but listen, Paul is a man of very strong values. You read the book of Acts and his letters, like this guy does not back down from anything. He doesn't do anything unless he's convinced it's the right thing to do. You know, for the last few weeks, people have been telling him, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. He's like, I get it, but I gotta go, right? He is a man of incredible, str incredibly strong values. He does not waver or budge when he has a conviction. And as soon as he gets to Jerusalem and he's given this odd request, Paul just sort of goes along with it. And it makes me wonder, like, what in the world? Right? I mean, it wouldn't shock me if Paul just laughed at them and, you know, told them, you guys don't know what you're talking about, and just stubbornly refused to go along with their plan. But he doesn't. He just willingly accepts the invitation. It's like he's standing there. He's like, okay, I'll, yeah, all right. And it just makes me wonder, like, what gives, Paul? Like, you're this guy, this stalwart, this guy that holds value. Like, you're so strong in your convictions and values. Why are you so easily convinced to go along with this plan? And then I thought of that one word, the incarnation. You see, Paul recognizes that the gospel message only has power when it meets people where they are. It began with God sending Jesus to us. And so it only makes sense that it would continue by meeting people where they are. Even in their sin and rebellion and lack of understanding. He is not going to draw a line in the sand around an issue that he knows has no bearing on anyone's salvation. So this is what it takes to bring, if he decides, if this is what it's going to take to bring about peace in the church, 
continue to advance the gospel, to disciple people, to show them, look, this is what it looks like to meet people right where they are, then I'll do it. I I won't stand in the way. You know, later in life, Paul would write a letter to the church in Corinth. And in it, he sort of describes his understanding of the incarnation. He describes what might have been going on through his mind in Acts chapter 21. And he says, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. And when I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under the law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. And when I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, well, I too live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. But I don't ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. Right? I'm not going to go about sinning and all of that. But when I'm with those who are weak, I share with their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to, and here's the word, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. Look, Paul Paul is passionate. Paul has strong convictions in his life. But he is not concerned about things like following Jewish customs. And he is instead more concerned with reaching people with the good news of Jesus. So if he is with his fellow Jews... He follows their customs. He meets them right where they are. This is what you want to do? Purification ceremony? I'll go with you. I'll love you. I'll walk with you through this. And if he's with his Gentile brothers and sisters, well, he doesn't follow the Jewish customs because they don't know anything about it. And he meets them right where they are. And again, this doesn't mean that Paul doesn't have any convictions. We know he has extremely strong convictions. He even says, I don't ignore the law of God. Right? I, I obey where Christ is leading me, what God has done in me. He has his conscience, and he won't do something that goes against God's wishes or results in sin. But beyond that, he will, and here's the key phrase again, he will find common ground with everyone. So Paul goes through the purification ceremony. Not because he believes he has to or because he needs to, but because he's willing to find common ground for the sake of the unity of the church and ultimately the spread of the gospel. You know, Paul is often labeled the most polarizing character in all of the Bible. And while he will never budge on his faith in Jesus, his mission to reach others, and that salvation comes through grace, through faith. He finds common ground with anyone and everyone who will listen. While everyone else is busy drawing lines in the sand and saying, no, if you want to do this, you got to come over here. If you want to be a Christian, you got to, you got to vote this way. If you want to be a Christian, you got to do it this way. If you want to be a Christian, you got to be it like this. If you want to be a Christian, you got to go to this church and read this translation. Do you hear all the dumb lines in the sand we draw, by the way? I mean, we're getting at it now. We're getting at it now. He is willing to find common ground with anyone who's willing to listen while everyone else is drawing lines in the sand and expecting a battle. Paul erases the lines and he says, I'm looking for common ground with you. Where do we meet? 
right where you are. As I look around the landscape of Christianity in America today, I'm afraid I see a lot more people drawing lines and seeking battles than looking for common ground. Man, we are so good at drawing lines in the sand and telling those outside the church, you either come over here and you believe like we believe and you think like we think and you do like we do, or you can just stay out. We're really good at that. I'll be honest with you, as a pastor, I am nervous about the next nine months because there's something happening in our country that if four years ago tells us anything, it's that evangelical Americans decided we're drawing lines in the sand and you either come to our side, whatever side that is that you believe in, and by the way, there were people on the right and the left, you either come to our side or you stay out. It makes me nervous as a pastor. So don't you dare come to me and ask me, hey, Pastor Ryan, are you going to preach on this? Are you going to preach on that? Because I want to make sure that my agenda comes out in the next nine months. Not going to do it. Our goal here is not to form agendas. Whatever. My goal, if you, you, you want to come to me and say, hey, how can we find common ground with the people in our world that we don't get along with? Man, I'm all here. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. That's what we are to be about. We are to be the people of the incarnation who have come to meet people right where they are. Stop drawing lines in the sand. You've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. It gets me wondering about myself. Look, I like, look, I'm guilty, just like all of you, but it gets me wondering am I a common ground person or a battleground person? Paul was a common ground person. I'm not going to fight you with you about these non essential issues. They, they don't, they don't, in the end, they don't matter. And yeah, they have purpose and they, they serve us and all, but I'm not going to draw lines in the sand. I'm not going to battle you on these Jewish customs because in the end, they don't matter. What matters is Jesus and what matters is what he has come to tell us and show us and lead us to. What matters is grace and mercy and love and leading people to see the goodness of God in and through him and through his church. That's what matters. And I'm not going to draw lines in the sand. I'm going to erase those lines. I'm going to find common ground with you and invite you into the fold that you might too follow Jesus yourself. That's what Paul is saying. Are you, before you clap, don't clap yet. Are you a common ground person or a battleground person? Because I'm telling you right now, if you seek the battle, you won't win. And neither will they. But if you, like Paul, seek that common ground, even when when you're just like, okay, right? Like, it's, look, I have my convictions, but okay. Even when, if we seek that common ground, if anything tells us, if the Bible tells us anything about the incarnation, all it does is perpetuate the movement in advance of God's gospel in the world. 
The incarnation shows us that the mission of God is about meeting people right where they are in their sin and in their brokenness. The incarnation shows us that we are not to be people who fight for our right, but instead give it up for the sake of others knowing. Paul shows us that we have a responsibility to find common ground with everyone for the sake of people knowing and loving Jesus. And let me tell you, this doesn't mean you can't have your convictions. You should. It's a good thing. But I hate to break it to you. I hate to break it to you. If you're a Christian, your convictions are not the same as someone who's not yet a Christian. And expecting them to have your same convictions is untenable. It's impossible. The goal is not to get them on your side. The goal is to find common ground with them right where they are, that they might know that there's a God who loves them and sent his son, Jesus, Emmanuel, through the incarnation to be with them. I'm not saying this is easy. We live in a world that seeks to draw lines in nearly every aspect of our culture, lines are being drawn. If you don't believe me, just glance at that political landscape that we live in and you will see them. Living out the incarnation goes against all that we know and all that we see in the world. We've been taught and shown the best way to live in this world is to only gather with those you agree with and draw lines to keep everyone else out or if they want to join you to make sure that they cross all the T's and dot all the I's before they do. And I hate to say it, this happens even in the church and it can no longer happen. But here's the thing. Did you know, this is amazing news, did you know that you can have your convictions and still love people who don't share them with you? Did you know that? Did you know you can disagree with people and still find common ground with them? Did you know Jesus is actually pleased when we set aside our desires for the sake of other people? After all, that's exactly what he did for us. Let's not forget the incarnate God, what he did for us. Jesus, he left heaven to come for you. He gave up eternal glory to enter into our broken, sinful world. He was born into this world that he could find common ground with each and every one of us that we would experience forgiveness and new life with him. He didn't stand in heaven and go, come on, let's go. He instead erased the lines and he came into our ground, our holy ground here on earth, and he said, I am with you right where you are. And while on earth, Jesus crossed all sorts of lines in the sand as well, cultural lines and economic lines and racial lines and societal lines, all to help people know that God loves them and desires a new relationship with them through him from the woman in the well, at the well to the healing of the leper to the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus was constantly on the lookout for common ground with those he encountered. And I want you to know, no matter where you are this morning, that Jesus will meet you right where you are today. No matter what you have done or where you've been or who you have become, Jesus is still in the business of finding common ground with you. You don't have to jump through some hurdle or cross some line. He's already done all that for you. All you have to do is allow him 
to do what he does best, to bring hope and forgiveness and salvation to your life. You are on, with, you are on common ground with God this morning. Embrace it. Allow him to move in your heart and your mind. Surrender yourself to him and see how he will heal and change your life. That is what we are after at this church. A God who finds common ground with us and a mission to find common ground with the world around us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word this morning. It is challenging, I admit, we don't have it all figured out. We get it wrong all the time. And yet, even in the midst of all of our jumbled ideas, you still meet us right where we are. You invite us back. You show us new ways. I just pray, God, that we would remember that you are the incarnate God, that you came in the flesh and lived among us to find common ground with us, that you knew everything about what it means to be human just like we do, to be tempted and to suffer, to experience pain. And yet you didn't sin. It's my prayer, God, that as a church, that we would see common ground with people, especially with people who are not yet Christians, who have not leaned into this faith thing in you, God, that we would instead of drawing lines and asking people to do this or do that or jump this or jump that, that, God, we would meet them right where they are. That through the life that we live, through the work that you've done in our hearts and in our minds, God, that you would express to them the same love that you've expressed to us. Lord, I thank you that you didn't draw lines in the sand for me. And he didn't draw lines in the sand for anyone else in this room. But that you met us right where we are. And I know that right now in this moment, you are meeting someone right where they are. In their sin, in their brokenness, in their shame. And I know that what you are whispering to them right now is come to me and I will give you rest. Place my yoke upon you, for it is not a burden, it is not heavy, but it is light. Come with me. I will walk with you into whatever life has for you next. If that is you, I just encourage you, will you respond this morning in faith? To give yourself over to that. Allow him to take residence in your life and lead you and guide you to whatever is next because he has come to be with you right where you are. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for the life that you gave so that we might experience forgiveness and new life. It's in your name we pray. Amen.